Welcome to Podcast at Boatwright. I am Lucretia McCulley, Head of Scholarly Communications at Boatwright Library. Our faculty interview is with Dr. Thomas Bonfilio, Professor of Literature and Linguistics and the William Judson Gaines Chair in Modern Foreign Languages. Dr. Bonfilio is the author of The Psychopathology of American Capitalism, published recently by Springer Press. The book synthesizes psychoanalytic and Marxist techniques in order to account for the suppression of leftist politics in America, the protectionist discourses of anomalous American capitalism, and the rise of neoliberalism. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Lucretia. <laughs> and to start off our conversation, what inspired you to write this book? Ah, uh, yes. Well, uh, we've discussed this a couple of times in, this <laughs> in these podcasts, um, and I have to quote a colleague, which I've done before. And um, this colleague said some years ago, what you do, Tom, is you find something that blanks you off. <laughs> it's a word that I can't say on the air, but you can fill it in. Yes. <laughs> you find something that blanks you off, and then you write about it. So. And um, with this book, uh, what really has been preoccupying me for quite a while is precisely the suppression of the, the left wing in the United States and the fact that nobody sees it, uh, that Democrats are, in the United States are considered to be, uh, considered to be left wing. Um, and of course, my knowledge, knowledge that I and a lot of my colleagues have about international politics, especially politics in Western Europe, <laughs> And the American, uh, the American spectrum won't fit on that. The American spe spectrum in, uh, really in the, uh, in the theater of international politics, uh, falls on the far right. Both parties fall on the far right. Um, why do Americans not see that? Uh, especially academics. Why do academics act like they don't see it? Why do they vote like they don't see it? Um, why do those in, <clears throat> Uh, in, in international research, um, why do they would they do they support left wing parties in in, in Europe, for instance? They would support um, the Socialist Party in France, and then vote Democrat in the United States. Why? Um, now it's clear that you know your average person, uh, average American, doesn't get much um, information from. The politics of the uh, the industrialized democracies. Um, they take the American system to be. Uh, they just generalize from the American system. What what fascinates me is why people who know the system outside the United States um, do not vote in the United States in order to um, in order to have that that system that that they would they would clearly support. And so I started doing research on that, and it was very fascinating. Um, I learned that the, um, of course, as, as we know, there were very strong communist, socialist, and labor parties in the United States. Uh, those got exterminated, basically, all but exterminated, by the Democrats and Republicans together after World War II. Um, in Roosevelt's first election, the uh, the communist socialist parties together got about 300,000 votes. Um, excuse me, uh, it's the other way around. In his first election, uh, they got over a million votes. In his second election, 
uh, they got about 300,000. Why? Because he had to move to the left in order to include them. And that's basically the model outside of the United States where you have very, very strong communist and socialist parties and very, very strong capitalist parties. And they find a middle. And in my, um, in my book, I have one section um, which is entitled, uh, How Many Ends Does It Take to Make a Middle? <laughs> um, because there really isn't one in the United States. It's, it's, uh, it's two right-wing parties. And as I said, uh, both of them got together and uh, all but killed off the communist, socialist, and labor parties in the United States so that they're, they're barely visible now. They're not, not even on the ballot in Virginia. Um, and they did that, of course, in order to suppress the labor movement in the United States, in order to suppress organized labor. The, uh, the straw man for that was the Soviet Union, and was, uh, that gave, gave rise to McCarthyism, this, uh, um, this really um, you know, rabid anti-communist movement. But the target of that, as I found in my research, was not the Soviet Union, because there weren't Soviet communists in the United States. <laughs> there clearly weren't any in Hollywood. Um, the target was the American labor movement, and they basically, uh, they very drastically reduced the American labor movement. And of course, got rid of the communist and socialist parties. And then they set up a false binary of right and left, um, which uh, excluded the interests of the working class. And um, gradually, uh, because of that, because there were no party, there were no political parties to organize the working classes, <clears throat> they uh, became basically voiceless. There was no one to support their concerns. And uh, very slowly, the system managed to convince them that right-wing politics was in their best interests. And the, the champion of that was Ronald Reagan, who convinced them that uh, no government was, or less government was in their interests. And also that drastically reducing taxes. Now, in the industrialized democracies, there's uh, there are uh, communist, socialists, and labor parties who explain to workers why that doesn't work for them. It explains to them that they will not benefit from lower taxes. The rich will benefit from lower taxes. In the United States, you don't have uh, you don't have that that political structure. People keep on voting Democrat and Republican. <clears throat> and therefore excluding any mechanism to educate the working class, um, which then perpetuates the, the problem. Um, since Reagan, it's been moving more and more to the left. And what really fascinated me, and this is where the, the psychoanalysis comes in, Marxism, which I use a lot, can explain clearly uh, the dominance of class interests, right, of affluent class interests and the suppression of the working class. But I, I, my theory is that only psychoanalysis can explain its maintenance. Uh, for instance, in the, the recent Virginia election now, everybody's elated right, that the Democratic uh, candidate won, who is a Gulf War veteran who voted twice for Bush. Uh, what is that going to change? Um, what really interests me is how the system set up the appearance of an absolutely imperative um, uh, need to vote Democrat, an obsessive need to vote Democrat, um, when in fact that's not going to change anything. We've seen that it hasn't changed anything. 
it hasn't because the, the, the both of the parties have been moving more and more to the left uh, since um, uh, since Reagan. Um, and through the psychoanalytic um, uh, perspective, I um, and of course there has been a, there has been a lot of work on this that that, that I accessed. Um, I got a perspective on uh, the rise of identity politics in the United States and the fact that the system itself reflexively will um, create symbolic, apparent symbolic solutions to the problem. And of course, symbolic solutions are no solutions. Um, it will not engage in uh, systemic solutions, economic solutions to the problem. It will. Uh, instead of redistributing income, it will engage in a symbolic response to that, which would be, for instance, um, uh, hiring, hiring minorities as a sign that things are getting better, okay? um, and focusing only on that. Um, Diversifying the student body as a, as a sign that things will be getting better when actually income isn't being distributed. Now, clearly, um, identity politics and diversity is absolutely necessary, um, but it needs to be in addition to systemic economic solutions. The system itself, and this is where Marx comes in, because the system itself will perpetuate itself reflexively and generate defense mechanisms to, um, to exclude the economic, uh, economic changes to the system. And the system has, has latched onto identity politics and systemic, uh, excuse me, symbolic solutions instead of systemic ones. Um, yeah, so that's basically the argument in, in, in a nutshell. Um, the, um, the uh, the force of the uh, the anti left movement um, I found actually uh, the, the anti communist movement actually um, crippled to if I can use that term really really disabled the um, it, it took the politics uh, clearly the political economy out of the civil rights movement and out of the um, uh, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement. Um, the uh, the early civil rights movement was in, in the United States was involved in um, the anti-colonialist movements in Africa. And the information was getting to uh, uh, black Americans through churches. It was even getting to, um, to non-literate black Americans uh, through churches. Um, the United States, however, supported those regimes in Africa, and it became practically illegal to to to, um, to oppose that, to oppose those regimes. Consequently, the civil rights movement uh, depoliticized itself. Very similar thing happened with the um, uh, with the, the feminist movement. Uh, Betty Friedan um, was who wrote the the, uh, the feminine mystique. She was. Um, a, a, a journalist for the United Electrical Workers Union, extremely strong labor union, uh, which got severely, uh, the numbers of which got severely reduced. They got reduced by about 90% because of the anti-communist movement. 
it caused for them to move over into a safer venue, if you will. One of the critiques of American feminism uh, by scholars like Bell Hooks, by uh, uh, black scholars like Bell Hooks, is that it serves upper-middle-class white college-educated men. So in that sense, the system has created something that appears to be changing the system, appears to be moving in the direction of democracy um, through symbols and does not engage, does not infect, does not effectively engage um, problems of the poor. As a matter of fact, everyone was very excited um, when Obama got elected, but poverty has actually increased under Obama. Blacks are not any better off. Um, so that symbolic imagistic response is, is no solution. The only solution is to have um, massive social programs that take care of poor people, that take care of families, redistribute the income that way. And that's what the United States um, won't do. Psychoanalysis helps there again because um, what I got from psychoanalysis is basically that <clears throat> we sense this. We um, comfortable upper middle class whites do not want to lose our privilege. And we sense that this system will, the system with its symbolic identity politics, response to the problem instead of a systemic socioeconomic solution through higher taxes. Um, we sense that we will remain in power in that system. And we cling to it desperately. And we cling desperately to the Democrat-Republican dyad. And we vote with ferocity for Democrats. This is very cynical. But if you're working in psychoanalysis, you have to admit the existence of sadistic human urges. And my theory is that we, we cling to that system because we, part of us, that sadistic part of human nature, wants some people to be poor, and we're also uh, so that we can maintain our, 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 our prosperity. Um, and also we're afraid of losing that prosperity. Since there's no social net to take care of us, right? um, since the onus falls on the American family, to support itself, um, to support their children, to pay ridiculously high tuition, which astounds anyone else in the industrialized world. Um, we sense that, and we sense that there's not a net below us. There's not a net below anyone. And that causes us to ferociously cling to the system. Now, I've been through this argument a lot with, um, with colleagues. And I really don't mean to sound arrogant, but um, I, you know, I, I go step by baby step through everything, tracing out how the Democrats and Republicans killed off the, the, the socialists and communists and labor parties, how this false binary has, has, um, has emerged. But, and, and step by step, but still, um, when I talk to them again a few months later, I get pushed back to square one. You're throwing your vote away by voting for the Green Party because I refuse to vote within that within that um, that dyad because that will only um, that will only perpetuate things. The only solution is to develop 
the left-wing parties that you see in the rest of the industrialized world that can communicate to workers, that can come up with, ridic with ridiculous demands like you see in the French Communist Party, that the French Communist Party in the 2012 elections wanted to limit <laughs> all income to just under $500,000, right? They got 11% of the vote, okay? Um, and then the other parties say, okay, guys, look, okay, we can't do that, but can we compromise somehow? And then you get a, you ride at a middle. Once you lop that off, the middle is no longer there. And we know that the middle is no longer there, and we want to maintain this false binary, liberal and conservative. The language has disappeared completely. We, 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 we've lost a language for political analysis. Red now means Republican. <laughs> Texas is a red state. There's reds in Texas. And of course, I know up until this century, it clearly meant communists. Liberal in the rest of the world means conservative. It means um, uh, economic liberalism, laissez-faire politics. Here, it refers to a, a decentered amalgam of disparate interests. So the, the vocabulary is, is, is confused. Another example is um, American exceptionalism, right, which de Tocqueville uh, first coined when he said that the United States is an anomaly. That's what the exception is. The United States is an exception. And he said that no democratically elected people will ever get there. And that's what it means outside of the United States. Uh, American exceptionalism refers to a system that basically no one else wants. Um, but Americans shifted the meaning of that word because of their fears. They shifted it along the um, along that that um, they, they shifted it along that line of semantics, the syntagm of semantics, if you will. If you will the semantic syn syntagm, over to mean excellent. Right? That's another meaning of it. Right? Oh, you did an exceptional job, excellent. Uh, they would prefer that. And you hear debates now, you can see articles in the New York Times uh, asking, well, is America still exceptional? Why are we still the, are we still the best one? Actually, the, the question is, why is America the anomaly? And that's what's not meaning to us. Both parties know that, um, perhaps semi-consciously, and, and that's that's why they've locked down the system, the two of them, the two right-wing parties. And so, you know, the only, the only solution I see is to not take an American short-term solution, which is really no, uh, no solution, but to start voting in such a way that you might have an economy that you would like to have in, in 10 or 20 years. The only way to do that is by expanding, is by expanding the socialist green, green and, and, and communist parties. Otherwise, you're not going to get to uh, any kind of uh, any kind of middle ground. You're not going to arrive at a capitalist welfare state. Well, thank you, Tom. That's a, a fascinating analysis and argument. Well, how do you think the University of Richmond community? Uh, could use this book to address the problems in American politics. Well, precisely, and those are the problems uh, you know facing us. I think I um, you know just answered that. Um, we could use it, and some of my colleagues have asked me to speak on it in some courses. And you know, I get responses from students. Um, it's especially important for students to hear 
because our students want to improve things. We sense that. They're not content with the current political system. Right? They really are not. Um, most of them are massively uh, in, in massive disapproval of Trump. And this could help them see um, that so the solution is not to vote within the system that created Trump, but to vote outside of it. If you look at the debates on, um, on Trump now, uh, the, the issues surrounding Trump, all the controversy, um, the, 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 the general controversy avoids the concerns of political economy and poverty. It tends to focus on behavior. How did this awful person get to be president? How did this thug get to be president? This billionaire thug get to be president? And I'm afraid that all that will achieve in the long run is a kinder, gentler form of conservatism. The next candidate would appear to be uh, people. There's actually nostalgia now for Bush. You know, people are saying, "Well, Bush wasn't that bad." Right? So I'm afraid that all that's going to generate is, um, is as I said, a kinder, gentler conservatism. And that was the, the, the basis of a lot of the uh, the dialogue. Uh, surrounding Clinton and, uh, and Trump, Hillary Clinton and Trump. She came across as the, as the, 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 the balanced, well-adjusted maternal figure, and he was the overgrown, um, impudent kid. And that's really where the, uh, most of the, the attention focused. So the system, this Trump, the system produced Trump in order to protect itself. Um, who's responsible for the election of Trump, for the creation of Trump? Roosevelt's Democratic Party in the 36 election took about 700,000 votes away from the Communist Socialist parties with the New Deal. When that ended, the, in, those, the interests of the pro-labor interests of the communist and socialist parties disappeared. Um, by abandoning the left wing, the Democrats eventually created Trump. Interesting thoughts. Thank you. <laughs> Well, did students assist you with the research and preparation of this book? Yeah, um, yeah, they did. Uh, I teach every couple of years, I teach a course in psychoanalysis. Through the generosity of the psych, our psych department, which is remarkably progressive, um, American psychology, uh, after the Second World War, kind of sidelined psychoanalysis. And um, our psych department actually uh, counts it toward the major as an elective. There's two sections, right? One in my department, and there's actually a separate section in psychology. And, um, you know, the, the, our students are, you know, they know there, there, could, there could be a, a, a better system. And when I engage the psychoanalytic arguments in, in the psychoanalysis course, they respond very well, and they give me great ideas. And also, it's just the... the the idealism of the students that's inspired me. They respond less defensively than, than 
than um, a lot of academics in the club. As soon as I bring up voting green, which is really the only thing you can do in Virginia, they're the only party that <laughs> supports the environment, which I think it might, might be a problem, um, and the only party that supports the working class, then I, what I hear is, well, you're throwing your vote away. Well, <laughs> if you vote within that diet of two right-wing parties, <laughs> aren't you throwing your vote away? Uh, but the students, you know, the students are quite idealistic, uh, which is good, which is one of the reasons why I love teaching. I love dealing with that that segment of the population. They haven't lost their, their idealism yet. Um, and that has really kept me going. And it was amazing that the, 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 uh, the day after Trump was elected, it was it was just, it was like teaching cadavers. They were, they were total response. And when I came here, in the 80s, all of my students had voted for Reagan. Yeah. And the students are really shocked by that. But I think it's important for us to see that it's that two-party system that created Trump and the lack of political discourse and the lack of political dialogue, the lack, lack of political parties in the United States. Thank you. And our concluding question, how did library services support you in writing this book? Um, every book I've, I've, I've written here, okay, and I've written, well, actually, yeah, five. <laughs> Everyone has an, in the acknowledgments. It says, um, I wish to thank the interlibrary loan services at the Boatwright Library because uh, you guys find me the most obscure things um, for every book I've done, and unrelentingly. Um, and if you can't find it right away, you'll, you'll look somewhere else and apologize, and then it gets put in my mailbox. You know, some obscure things from, you know, local libraries in North Dakota, you know, <laughs> with no complaints at all. It's amazing. No, I couldn't have done this without, uh, because, you know, we're not at a research library, and I've done, I do the research at the National Library of France, the Columbia Library, and the New York Public Library. Um, but I, I can't always get to those places, and I really, I could not have done it without uh, ILL. Well, thank you. I'm glad we could be of help. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Bonfilio, for your conversation. The Psychopathology of American Capitalism is available in the Boatwright Library and the University Bookstore.